Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Conflict can be creative. Indeed, If we're to survive the challenges of the 21st century and create a better world, it must be. So in this episode of the Working Together podcast, I have a conversation with Jamie Chicano, a conflict specialist with nearly 20 years of experience, about how to create solutions in the midst of conflict. Because, in the heat of the moment, it can be hard to begin noticing and creating solutions together. It can be hard to get into a flow state, as it's called, and perform at your best. And it's this challenging work, performing well under conflict, that Jamie and I talk about. This is a great conversation about the very kernel of what working together is all about. Collaboration, but even under the most difficult circumstances. I hope you enjoy it. So, um, thank you, Jamie, again, for participating in this conversation, uh, with working together with myself and with the audience of listeners that I have, uh, who are interested in collaboration and, you know, social innovation and trying to get groups of people together, uh, in innovative ways, uh, in ways that help them tackle complex issues without, um, you know hurting each other's feelings and getting the job done and so on and so forth. Right. So these are some of the themes that, that have come up in, in uh, previous interviews I've had on the podcast. Um, and I'm really grateful that you're able to kind of talk to us about some of the work that you've done in that space and in other spaces. Um, and so thank you. No, it's good to be here. I, it's my first time. So I'll confess to that. Um, and I look forward to, yeah, see how, seeing how the conversation unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I should note to the listener as well that Jamie is a master conversationalist. So, uh, I'll well, do my best. We'll see about that. I'll do my, <laughs> uh, you know, a master question asker. That kind of rhymes. It's, it's got a good internal rhyme. Um, so, uh, one of the things that I always start out all of my conversations with, with people, um, is this question around kind of, uh, you know, who you are and, and what, what you do, uh, but also how you came to do the work that you're doing, right? Your, your history around the topic, which in this case is, uh, you know, there's a lot of conflict management, there's a lot of negotiation, and there's also now this interest in kind of neuroscience and the science behind flow states and things of this nature and kind of seeing how you can tie the two together. Um, so yeah, I'd be curious to hear from you a little bit about your history. Yeah. 
And it's tough to know where to start. I mean, I, I sort of fell into my work, I guess. I mean, I, I grew up, I think one of the formative times of life for me was I grew up in Southern Africa in a small country called Swaziland. So I, I went to school there and I was sort of absorbed in growing up as a teenage boy in this sort of un- wonderful place um, and went to a school that was full of students from all over the world. So I was educated in a highly sort of um, multicultural, sort of diverse um, set of populations, I guess that you could say. And the other thing was that it was a highly sort of politically and arts-oriented sort of environment. So it was sort of just pre-Mandela getting released. It was a lot of exiles from South Africa's children would be at the school. So it was charged that way, and it was quite, um, it was quite sort of, um, I guess alternative to the, the sort of oppressive system that was just across the border. So I got the privilege to not only, you know, adventure in this beautiful country and, you know, roam the hills and, and do, do stuff that teenage boys do, a lot of it, with huge amounts of freedom, mm-hmm. and also be educated with people from all over the world and have access to arts and culture and, and, and environment that was Southern African. And I was an outsider to that, but very much, you know, grew up in that. Um, so I think that was a major part of my formation as a, as a, as a human being, um, which I think probably maybe in some way led not explicitly or directly into the kind of work I think I kind of fell into. Hmm. Interesting. So what was it about these, uh, these experiences that you had as a child in the backcountry and whatnot? Like, were you encountering, um, <laughs> conflict situations and and having to work your way through them or no i i was i was your i guess i was you know your, your regular raging teenage guy uh doing the things that we do but the school itself was found i mean it's an it's a united world college that they're scattered all over the world and philosophically and i'm not sure i paid a huge amount of attention to that at the time but philosophically they were designed as alternative well alternative in some ways education environments that brought together people from all over the world to learn and study and live together. So it was boarding school. So that the philosophy being if people from all over the world can be educated together and live together and play together and do sport together, um, when we graduate and go out into the wider world, we'll be more tolerant, we'll be more um, multiculturally sensitive and aware and, and basically better better global citizens Mm -hmm. so at some level that was the philosophy of 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 where i grew up and this notion of sort of an anti-oppressive um milieu that 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 surrounded me now again as a 15 16 17 year old boy i don't know how conscious i am of the particulars of that Mm -hmm. but on the other hand it must have had a an effect and an impact and an influence Mm -hmm. um but to, to directly tie them together i'm not sure um, but I think it did eventually lead me towards the direction that I ended up, and I, as I said, falling into, but I can talk a bit more about that later. So, I mean, I can see where, where you're coming from as a, as a child, as a teen with this, uh, you know, with this ethos of non-oppressiveness and kind of a global citizenship outlook. Right. And the whole idea there is you're trying to see past difference Mm -hmm. in a way, or at least like use difference in some way to create a positive outcome of some sort or, uh, uh, or develop a solution that hadn't been thought of before. Right. And, um, I'm curious to hear how you fell into the work that you're doing now, because the work that you're doing now is, uh, 
I mean, it, it's fantastic. I took your course, as you know, maybe uh, about a year and a half ago or so, um, and was kind of blown away. It was the first time I encountered interest-based negotiation and mediation and things like this. I had always heard about it from a distance, but didn't quite know what it was and what it was about. Um, and that experience of taking the class and then trying to kind of continue my education and participate in projects at work that involve that really, uh, for me has been a game changer for my life and, and how I kind of approach conversations with people and conflict in general. Um, so I'm, I'm curious now, like, how did you fall into this, this work that you did? Well, I mean, it, it was, I mean, when I sort of finished off with Africa, I was kind of done and it was time to kind of go back to Canada and, and, you know, go on to the next chapter, which seemed to, to be taken for granted that it would be university somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I chose a place in Ontario. I don't exactly know why at this point. It's been a couple of years there. It was a big transition just coming from what I grew up in close friends and the environment to, you know, being in a small place in Ontario at a university. Yeah. Did that for a couple of years and, and then migrated out here, out here being the West Coast, obviously, and fell into, uh, you know, I needed work, I, you know, and I, I always loved being outside. I was very active um, and I fell into tree planting of all things. Oh, okay. So I spent several years almost quasi full-time in season mm -hmm. in that nomadic kind of lifestyle, cruising yeah. around the province, you know, with truck, dog, I've got a lot hair. of friends who've yeah. That. yeah so that was a bit of a lifestyle. And, and in the midst of that, I was dabbling through school and finishing things off, you know, on the edges of, of just sort of discovering, you know, who, who am I in this in this new place, in this new stage of life? And had no real answers to any of that, um, but appreciated that lifestyle for a while. Yeah. And then as I as I began to, um, I think, get more embedded in school, I was at UVic for a time doing some sort of environmental restoration of sorts. Yeah. It was at that time that I met somebody happenstantially or serendipitously or what have you or fate or the whatever one wants to describe it as and him and I have talked a lot about it he came in and delivered uh he being Gord Sloan my good friend and business partner and, right. and leader in the field of dispute resolution in Canada for the last 35 hmm. years so I met him and we we it's not, he came in to deliver a sort of basically a little workshop in the midst of a course I was doing on I think negotiation in the environment hmm. So, you know, and he did his thing and it wasn't like, you know, here's the gospel. I'm now converted. I thought oh, it was interesting. Seems like a nice guy. And that was that. And then it happened to, to be a potluck or something. I was just sitting on the deck. I pulled my dog out of my car. I'm just hanging out. And then we struck up a conversation and the conversation of all things was about squash, which we both play and I'm passionate about. And so was he. So we kind of connected a bit on that. And then we talked about maybe playing someday and, and of course never followed up. Mm -hmm. And then I was on Salt Spring oh, several months later with a buddy of mine and my brother. We were at the pub shooting darts, drinking beer, and then there he was. So we, we reconnected there, and it turns out he had lived on Salt Spring for the longest time. So we reconnected, and then to, to sort of accelerate the story, we got to know each other a bit in that squash court kind of hanging out kind of yeah, way. Yeah. And then I got more interested in what he did. Yeah, and at yeah. that point, he was a very successful solo practitioner, mediator, teacher, trainer, kind of conflict resolution in, in guru. What, in what fields? In, in all in fields. All I fields, mean, he was yeah. one of Canada's sort of first and, and, and sort of, I guess, pioneering in a way. Right. People who started family mediation and then did a lot of stuff in the environment and then, you know, gravitated away from law as a lawyer. He was Salt Spring's first lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and then gravitated away from traditional law because he didn't really, you know, believe necessarily in 
a more adjudicative third party decision making delivery, right? Yeah. And got got, I think, um, seduced in some regards about the potential of negotiation helped and the idea of training and helping people be better in conflict interactions. So I got a little interested in that. He I was rough around the edges, there's no question about that. Um, he saw something in me, I think, and we got on well. And then he sort of, in some ways, offered to be my mentor, basically. Mm-hmm. So I was graced into this field and into this work by, by him. And I got access to training and learning and, and processes that, that are almost impossible to get into as a beginner, right. as a novice. Yeah, yeah. But I had access. So I was given a privileged and very sort of graced entry into the work. Very through cool. him yeah and, and our story has continued for the last 20 years wow okay so this was about 20 years ago so this was around the time then in the field of negotiation and conflict studies and whatnot uh where probably i think like the integrative approach and we can talk a bit yeah. about what what that is uh, when we get to some of my questions here but that integrative approach that um you know is is I guess counter to what most people think of when they think of negotiation. Most people think of negotiation as a zero sum game. Like you got to negotiate with these guys or with this person here about the price of this thing or whatever. And there's going to be a winner and a loser. There's no way to like develop a more innovative solution out of that, you know, negotiation exercise or that conflict or whatever. So was Gordon kind of um, you you're saying he was a bit of a trailblazer in Canada. Was he kind of one of the first people bringing that, idea of negotiation that different like style of negotiation into canada and were you kind of part of that as well or did you did you start out like trump basically (laughs) where this is kind of zero sub approach um and then eventually you saw the light i I didn't i I didn't know where the light was frankly i mean i didn't know there was a light but i I think i'd always at some level been interested in 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 just in 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 conversational interaction I mean, it, it, right. uh, so at some level, that's an interest to me. I mean, yeah. how people I- interact verbally and, and just exchange information and ideas. So somewhere that was interesting to me. But in terms of, yeah, I think he was one of the leaders in Canada to promote through mediation, helping others negotiation, not only integrate, because we can, I don't want to get too academic, but there's integrated, which is theoretical. Yeah. The idea that we believe, and we, I, I think we elect to believe something, that problems or negotiation uh, substance has numerous ways to be treated. Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to divide up and divvy up the goods between us in some way yeah, and yeah. haggle over that and bargain over that. That is, I think, the convention. Mm-hmm. And the convention is not only win-lose, it's compromise. So negotiators move into these things saying there's a fixed amount of goods and gains here. We need to work at moderating excessive demands between each other to come to some degree of joint loss and some degree of joint gain. So that, that's a philosophy of negotiation, whether people admit it or not. Mm-hmm. You see that show up as they bargain and try to split the difference. But integrative, as you were talking about, is a philosophy that we can expand value if we treat the problem and the substance of what we're interacting about differently. So the negotiators have some, quite, I believe, quite a bit of an influence on how they construct an outcome. Mm-hmm. So the problem doesn't define the outcome. It's the way the negotiators deal with it. And if we choose to try to explore more value or resource to bear in our situation, might we come up with something that is not simply splitting the difference? Could we have some, some joint gains here? So that's integrative. But what, what dovetails nicely for that with that, and I think Gord's probably been the person most associated with that, 
and it comes from the Harvard Negotiation Project in the late 70s, mm-hmm. was this whole notion of getting to yes. Yeah. But getting to yes, the, the, I think the famous part of that in part is about interests. So forget negotiating about our opposing answers to our common problem. Rather than debate the merits of that and split that difference, let's talk about what, what drives the points of view that we have. What matters to us? Mm-hmm. What are the goals and objectives and values that influence the point of views that we have? So deconstruct my ideal outcome versus yours and understand what underlies that. So I think he was very instrumental in promoting what is you know, commonly called interest-based negotiation. Mm-hmm negotiating based on those qualities rather than divvying up a fixed sum based on what you declare is the right answer versus what I declare is the right answer. Yeah, it's, uh, what did you call it, I think, in the course? I think you called it positions. Yeah, right? position-based. Position-based approach. Yeah. Where um, essentially, you know, you come in and you say, well, this is what I want, and uh, I want to, you know, see at the end of the day this price tag on this car or whatever, and there's no but, you know, there's no wiggle room, right? But this integrative approach, you're creating value. And in in the class that you taught us, you talked a lot about the different skills and the different kind of tools and processes. And there's there's a lot in that space mm-hmm. for how you actually go about creating value that people can start to kind of see the problem differently and see a path through it differently. Um, what are some of those approaches or what are... I guess probably the most uh, integral approaches as far as you can see um, in that whole bucket of skills that are out there. I think you're right. There is a bucket. There's yeah. a whole range of what you want, techniques, tools, yeah. uh, strategic things we elect to do to, to pull off some result. I think one of the things that is essential is curiosity. Hmm. Because I think we often go in assuming that the answer to the problem is already known to us and we yep. need to sort of bargain over some rendition of that that's agreeable. But really genuinely being inquisitive and wondering about all of the edges to the stuff that we disagree about or the problems that we need to solve together. So rather than being um, preoccupied with our own point of view and our own position and the ego that, that I think surrounds that, mm-hmm. can we come in with a posture of greater curiosity? Which doesn't mean we abandon what's important to us and, and our fixed points of view. But curiosity needs to be demonstrated. Mm-hmm. So how do we punctuate a discussion when we disagree about something in a way that encourages more information to be revealed? Because it's in the revealing of novelty and, and creative um, material in conversation that points to possible passive integration. So it's often what we haven't discovered yet that lead us into different directions. So curiosity is, is partly a posture. Do I come in wondering and wanting to know? Mm-hmm. And what's the purpose behind that? Do I just want to know so I can critique what I'm going to learn? Yeah. Or do I want to know because it might lead us to an alternative way to look at um, the situation that we're in? So, and again, the skill set behind curiosity. I mean, sometimes they say, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm real curious today. Yeah. Well, okay, but how does that get activated? And, you know, it's the way in which the questions are posed. And, and formulating questions that dig deep and don't have answers embedded in them. Because a lot of people ask questions that aren't really questions. Yeah. They're leading people to the answer that's embedded in a, in a seeming question. Yes. So they're trying to check out uh, information that they're putting to the other. Rather than asking a question, they have genuinely no idea of the answer to. So I think by being more curious, um, we, we tend to uncover 
things that we didn't know or understand were important about the situations that we're in, the conflict situations, the negotiation situations. And by illuminating those, there, there might be potential in that to work together better rather than have to be opposed. So I think curiosity is one of the foundations. Mm-hmm. There's a whole other one about how the problem gets described, how it gets framed, packaged, mm-hmm. that has an effect on how negotiators treat it. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I remember some of that framing um, uh, discussion that you had with us. I recall kind of avoiding uh, the use of words like we, uh, where you're as the mediator if you're in a mediation. Um, but I guess even as a negotiator too, because you're trying to... Well, as a negotiation, we're in this together. Right. But if you're having a disagreement with somebody over some commercial issue, mm-hmm. and I'm mediating that on your behalf, which just means... I'm helping your negotiation. Mm-hmm. It's not my negotiation. I got no stake in the outcome. I have a stake in helping you communicate well enough that you get to an outcome that's agreeable. Yeah. So why would I include myself in the definition yeah, of yes. your problem? Mm-hmm. But if you and I, Stefan, are having a disagreement about something that comes up between us, it could be where we're going for dinner, who's paying for the, for the next round of beers, it doesn't matter. The way we are in this together, so the way I describe our disagreement will have an effect on how we talk about it. Right. So that's framing. And it's just a metaphor for how do we package, how do we sort of conceive of mm-hmm. and describe the issue or the problem or the disagreement that we want to solve. And, and this stuff is incredibly important. I mean, uh, there's psychological studies, tons out there that show that framing, the way you characterize something, the words that you use, uh, really do impact how you uh, either consciously or subconsciously are thinking through that problem or that situation or whatever. Um, and so I, I, I think it's totally huge. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's more than semantics. I mean, some people go, oh, it's just a, just a tricky language. I, I, I think you're entirely accurate. I think it's, we, ch- we begin to shift the way we think about it right. because we're describing it differently. We verbalize things to make sense of them mm-hmm. with, with each other when we're doing it out loud. So by verbalizing something in a way that describes it and characterizes it differently, we, be- we potentially can begin to shift how we regard it. Yes. And that might lead us into a different direction of, of an outcome. And, and, you know, somebody listening right now might be thinking, oh, geez, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work, having to be that present and that aware in the moment to uh, consider the choice of words that you're using, how you're framing the discussion, um, to consider how you're asking questions, i.e. more openly, rather than you know, closed questions that get you a yes or no answer, trying to really ask more questions like, what is it about this thing, this position that you've presented to me? Um, so a lot like, and I'm trying to tie in some of the work that I know you're uh, super interested in right now around flow, right? Which is how you get yourself to a, a, a place where you have the presence of mind, so to speak, to appear to the other party or parties if you're mediating um, that you are just kind of naturally engaging in the conversation. It's not stilted in any way. It's not strange. You're not looking at notes too much. Right. Um, uh, But doing that while also kind of employing some of these, these skills and these tools and, and, and things that require some practice to do. Right. Because they are skills. I mean, there are deliberate behaviors that often are not the thing we default to. Oh no! So, I can, and I have lots of experience yeah. from family life with yeah. that one. With yeah. that, <laughs> but it's also a great practice space. Yeah. But yeah, please go on. 
So, I mean, in terms of that, I mean, this, this notion of flow, which is my current sort of, I guess, passion and interest, mm-hmm. it's, it's, and it's, it's because I'm, I've always been, fa- I mean, maybe always is, is too long of a, a stretch, but for, for the longest time, fascinated by um, remarkable performance. And I just don't mean, you know, an amazing athlete doing something amazing in that moment, but, but people who, from all walks of life, all cultures, all backgrounds, do remarkable things mm-hmm. and conjure up in themselves something that is really quite amazing. Um, and, and I'm, I've always been fascinated by how, how to optimize my own performance. I don't mean become the best or better than, but how do, how do I cultivate habits and disciplines and, um, practices of varying kinds that will make me better at whatever it is I'm, I'm doing. And, and in this case, it's a lot of conflict work. So the, and, and the idea of flow is because it's quite topical these days because we have more neuroscience to show what is happening in the brain when we move into states of higher performance, when we're, when we're challenged sufficiently and we're paying focused, careful attention on something that is truly grabbing us. And there's enough there that we really are embedded in that experience. And it's, it's challenging, but and we're, it's not easy, but we're moving in with greater ease. And to me, I just don't, so far in my, my, I guess, research and thinking about this, there hasn't really been a connection made between how can we um, take advantage of some of this learning around flow and, and ways to induce it or encourage it and how might that affect the conflict experience? Because mm-hmm. I think it can affect it in all kinds of different ways. How so? Well, I mean, the three areas that I think are interrelated but I think make a difference is, I mean, if the flow state, I mean, in, in simply defined is, um, you know, an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. Mm-hmm. And that can be in anything, it can be when you're playing with your six-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could just be so involved with them and you can be getting along so well and having a great laugh and a great time. You're unconscious of everything else and it's just blissful. It can happen when you're making a lovely meal. It can happen when you're... So, so the experience of being fully engaged by something and not so conscious of ourself. We're, we're getting out of our own way. Mm-hmm. So we're much more um, involved in, in the nature of what's going on. So uh, in terms of conflict, there's three things that I'm interested in right now. One of them is, um, if we understand a bit about flow and how it can encourage people to perform better, to think better, because the studies have shown, I think they're pretty conclusive, in some degree of flow, people learn better, they're more creative, and they're more productive. And that's been studied and measured, and, and um, um, I think it's pretty conclusive. Yeah. So if, as a mediator or a conflict helper of any kind, if we can do something to just turn that up among those we work with, mm-hmm. what effect will that have on their problem-solving capacity and their conflict engagement um, experience? Quite a bit, yeah. One would think. Yeah. But I don't know that yet, mm-hmm. um, so I'm just sort of beginning to scratch the surface of right. that. So the effect of trying to induce some degree of flow um, among those we work with, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who are actively conflicting are far out of flow mm-hmm. because they're um, stressed, often anxious and somewhat distracted sometimes. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are sort of contrary <laughs> yeah. to an experience where you're producing and performing better. So it's, what's the effect on those of us who help others? The other two areas are, if I can um, cultivate habits or, or, or disciplines that allow me, quote-unquote, to flow better in my interactions, my conflict with other people should be different. So it's also about how, if I'm at ease, um, I, my cortisol levels aren't spiked, I'm not mm. stressed, I'm breathing well, I'm being more conscious and concentrated about what's going on in the moment. 
which is partly about flow. How will that affect the way I deal with somebody I disagree with? And can I do things prior to that or in preparation for that interaction um, that would right. make me perform better than I might do otherwise? So it's the direct engagement. Mm -hmm. The third thing, and this is also a bit of my sort of obsessive compulsive um, tendency, we show up, we at mediators, conflict helpers of every kind, and I think that we're vast and it could be, could be counsel, could be coaching, could be parenting. I mean, it's, it's vast. But my job, for the most part, is helping and serving others in conflict and in dispute and in problem solving and negotiation. So I've, I've increasingly been um, occupied with the idea that unless I show up in my optimal state right. to the degree yeah. I can, how much service can I be and how much better service can I be if I'm more quote unquote inflow or in the zone or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's also a measure of my own effectiveness as a helper and somebody who serves others. Because if I'm tired and stressed and pissed off and preoccupied and um, undernourished and underslept, I'm definitely going to show up differently when people are having a very difficult argument that they need help with. So I'm also quite occupied with my own state mm -hmm. because mediators have major influence by their presence. So mm -hmm. what can I do in terms of my own presence that might inspire, encourage, and help people? And I think I have an obligation to invest in that. Yeah, totally. No, that's, uh, I really like that breakdown. I mean, I just to kind of recharacterize it, reflect it back in a way. I mean, there's this idea of understanding flow so that we can set up an ideal condition for the conversation to occur there's this idea of understanding how you can perform better and then therefore um, the strategies that you can do in advance of an encounter i mean all of these I, i'm always fascinated by the notion of a meeting as an encounter it is it's an encounter yeah. between people anything can happen um, it could be really boring and nothing happens or it could be that some, you know, elephant in the room suddenly is right there on the table and everybody's talking it through. So just this, this kind of preparation for the encounter and, and what you can do to do that. And then the third thing, and did I get the second one right there? I think you did. Part of it is to me, um, you know, if I, let's suppose you and I have a meeting about something we disagree, whether yeah, it's at yeah. work or we're, we're, we're buddies and we had a, a, whatever the case may be, and I'm going to deliberately you know, want to work it out with you. Yeah. Now, if I, if I am, am conscious of, of being, of cultivating more flow in myself, mm -hmm. I should probably perform better when I deal with you. Yeah. So it's, it's my direct behavior yeah. in situations of conflict and stress and difficulty that if I can turn up some degree of the conditions of flow or the state of mind of that, mm -hmm. it should make me better dealing with you or anybody for that. Yeah. Matter. Okay. And then the third is more, um, I think I have an obligation Serving, to yeah. be in my best, my best presence mm -hmm. when I'm assisting others who are struggling. Yeah. And that one, um, that one is interesting because it makes me think about, um, uh, Google's project Aristotle, which, uh, was this, I think massive undertaking where they studied all of their own teams. I don't know if you've heard of this. I think, yeah, I think I have. They studied all their own teams um, and they had the, you know, pretty strong data analysis capabilities, obviously to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, they were trying to look at what made a team effective and, the uh, end result was 
safe space, right? That there is a sense of safety in these team dynamics, that there is comfort for people to come forward with ideas and know that they weren't going to get shut down and they could be more exploratory and so on. And I think uh, there are two suggestions that they had for leaders because it, it is the leader's responsibility in a sense to kind of model this. Uh, one was to basically like make sure that everybody has some airtime during whatever encounter or meeting you're having. Um, and then two, to be really cognizant and aware of people's emotional cues, all the nonverbal stuff that's going on in the room. And then, you know, if you notice something, talk it through with the person, kind of create the space for them to say something, maybe address their feeling that they're having, whatever, uh, and be curious, right? So there's curiosity behind all of this. And I think these three, these three kind of components of the flow state tie in with a piece that I recall you mentioning during our class, which I'm not sure how to characterize it, but it's almost this sense of once you learn this material, you are suddenly now obligated or you feel more obligated to use it in any conflict situation, even though you yourself might, you know, be kind of little grumpy about having to be the one to kind of rise to the occasion but because you see these skills and you understand how you can have a better conversation with people suddenly you are almost it's almost like you're a leader in that moment the secret leader people might not know that you're a you've read some stuff on negotiation and whatnot and you know some of the skills and whatnot Um, but suddenly you're almost kind of called forth to be that to practice that in that moment can you talk a little bit about about that experience that you have in your life? And, um, you know, you, you practice a lot of this stuff through your work with actual conflict situations in professional environments. But you also are using this all the time, I'm sure, right? And so how does that look for you? And, you know, with the flow state and with kind of daily practice at work, outside of work, how does that look? And, and honestly, I mean, I think that a lot of us who do, whether, whether we teach about whatever the given thing we, we preach to, to believe in, mm-hmm. and we might even be good at teaching it and sound believable when we do, if we were to be viewed outside of that context, are we being congruent with what we teach and preach? And by preach, I don't mean, I don't mean sort of in a, in a religious sense, but if we're mm-hmm. proclaiming that it's better to be curious and listen carefully to somebody else, that if we're, if we're selling conflict as an opportunity rather than, than, a, than, a, than a stressful struggle, if we're framing these things in our, in our teaching and in our, in our writing or what have you, what happens when we find ourselves in those situations? I think sometimes we depart from the things that we profess mm-hmm. to think work. Because I think, again, we're fallible, um, inadequate, you know. And we, we uh, can't be in flow all the no, time. No, no. Yeah. Um, and so I think in part... It's one thing to know these skills and to maybe even not master them, but be very proficient with them. Mm. But to me, there's a whole attitudinal shift to say that I'm going to elect into this because, frankly, it, it is something that I think has to be very deliberate. Because a lot of the time, I think it's contrary to some of the more primitive you know, uh, responses that, that are brought about in situations of conflict because a lot of people feel they're under threat. Mm-hmm. So this sort of more sort of primitive sense that that the the more you know the the sort of older part of our brain gets hyperactivated when we think psychologically in a difference with somebody else we're in some trouble there might be a threat here something that's important to me uh, there we might be vulnerable so we we shut off certain parts of our ability to 
to interact well and have some executive function and some degree of empathy. And then we revert, we revert to stuff that doesn't work, doesn't mm-hmm. serve us. So those skills, those tools that we can teach and we understand sometimes get parked and we elect to that other stuff. So for me, you know, honestly, for it, it, it's, it's a life's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, probably for the longest time, I don't know if I was adequately congruent with what I... I mean, it's not that I didn't believe what I taught, but when, when um, you know, excuse the expression, shit hit the fan, was I adopting those skills and, and traits and ways of being? And probably in a lot of cases, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But I think the only good thing about that was perhaps... I was honest with myself about that, I think. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't... I don't think I was fooling myself about that dissonance. So when, when, when I would find myself, whether it's in a disagreement or a stressful situation... Uh, and maybe misperform, you know, display anger or do something like that mm-hmm. um, less consciously and intentionally, I would reflect after the fact that I, I didn't show up as well as I could have if mm-hmm. I would have, you know, done it better. So, and I guess it's a stage of life thing a bit too, you yeah. know, going through certain things, um, major sort of life transitions and um, constantly, because uh, to me it's a discipline. It's a practice that I have to deliberately cultivate. And it's not that I don't have conflict or I don't, I don't fall into some of those traps. Um, but I, I also think it's important to see, does this stuff make a difference to you? If you're going to adopt better skills and better presence in conflict, does that serve something? Does it, does it achieve something for you? And if it doesn't, you're not going to do it. Yeah. And for me, I found it's made a huge difference in just a lot of different areas. This is this is all uh, super fascinating stuff, and it's it's evidence of I think kind of a general. I think I might have mentioned this to you maybe last week when we when we met over lunch. But it's evidence of this general shift that's happening right now in neuroscience and psychology, uh, behavioral economics. Even there's these big discoveries happening about who we are as humans, um, how we interact with each other optimally right and how we don't and uh the this whole conversation is making me think about this discover defend axis as 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 some people have called it basically which is exactly this problem of um kind of getting into these defensive modes uh whether your workplace isn't safe or you're in an argument with somebody or whatever 
and you actually shut down. Like you can't, you can't do the skills. You can't practice the stuff because you're so, uh, embroiled in it. Right. And there's, there are strategies for that around like, you know, exiting, (laughs) right. Um, uh, breathing exercises, things like this. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, like, uh, I know you're going to be offering this, this course mm-hmm. in a few weeks. Yeah, I hope to be, yeah. Uh, called Got Flow. Is yeah. That, is that well, it's right? called um, Bringing Flow to Conflict. Bringing Flow so to Conflict. So it's sort of the launch yeah. of, of learning about this. And I, yeah. you know, I'm certainly admitting that it, it's, it's early goings for me. And I'm, yeah. I'm taking a, a fair bit of the stuff that I've been learning and researching and in my own conflict practice for the last sort of 20 odd years and seeing how to weave some of that together and just sort of test out the, the concept of, um, you know, and it's not that I think that, you know, I, I think we can over, um, overemphasize any of these, these ideas or theories, but can we pick and choose bits and pieces of them to, to integrate into the way we do our work or the way we lead our lives? Um, because you know, some, you know, a complete flow state may not be available, but if we can even turn up certain attributes Mm -hmm. of performing better, being slightly more creative, listening at at greater depth, I mean, just small amounts of that, Mm -hmm. what effect will that have on people's conflict experience? Because again, I've, I've witnessed hundreds and hundreds of people disagree and of all degrees of sophistication and education and background and culture Mm -hmm. and, and people predictably in many cases, um, probably don't show up and perform that optimally for mm-hmm. good reason. And this is not me saying I'm better than that, but for good reason, we get hijacked for certain things. We get, I think, uh, preoccupied by that defense mechanism and certain things take over. And, and um, you know, are there ways to just reduce that tendency and replace it with something that will make people not only perform better, but when you perform better, you feel better. Mm-hmm. And if you feel better, your uh, experience of somebody you're in difference with could change too. Um, so I'm interested in, in, in the amount of, of that that could be integrated in, into conflict work. Because a lot of the, the research is in, in extreme sports. Mm-hmm. So people who are just so in the zone, so yeah. to speak, that they yeah. seem to do amazing things that are just defy... And they report out on those experiences almost, you know, they're out of their bodies almost. Time sort of stops and, and they're mm-hmm. just, they're so um, at one with, with that experience. So I'm not say, saying necessarily mediation will become that or, or the conflict experience, but some amount of those mm-hmm. um, contributors, if we could harness a bit of that, what would, what would the effect be? So that, that's kind of what I'm interested in. So the sort of course idea workshop symposium is going to begin to explore some of those ideas. But I also, because I'm passionate about, you know, part of what you had mentioned about, um, you know, breathing and just practices that ground us to be better able to have these challenging interactions. And I don't think we do close to enough of that at all. And the the environments in which many of us work are contrary to Mm. to sort of healthful um, engagement with other people. You know, we're sedentary, we're inside, Mm -hmm. we're desk bound, um, distracted, um, you know, usually poorly nourished and underslept. Yeah. So you take all of that uh, and all the stresses that come along yeah. with that and you can't expect that we're going to necessarily yeah. be our best. And when you add the stress of conflict and disagreement, mm-hmm. and not only the sort of psychological, emotional toll, but frankly, just the neurotransmitters in our brain are flooding us with these um, chemicals that, that have an effect on how we feel and how we deal with other people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm kind of interested in, in, in exploring that and seeing... Where might it take us? Because it, it, I want to see the combination yeah. of, of the conflict experience with some aspects of flow and, and where's the intersection potential. 
Yeah, well, I th- I, th- I definitely think that there is an intersection for sure because, and I I think that there's a element to culture in this, you know. And I don't know if in your hundreds of experiences that you've had mediating situations and whatnot, you've seen culture kind of play a role, like workplace culture, mm-hmm. like how how the team and how the people seem to be doing. Does that factor in as a as a way to like maybe? Uh, area that we should be focusing on a way to improve is is through culture i think it is i mean because because i think a lot of culture and just ways of being and environment and atmosphere mm-hmm. is is all they're all elements of culture sort of big c culture and and i think a lot of maybe just i'm, I'm thinking standard sort of canadian workplace government type mm-hmm. uh, culture is quite conventional yeah and it's quite risk averse and i don't mean we should be you know being risky and, and sort of um you know uh, dangerous out there, but but people are often you know constrained in their thinking and in their behaving because of policy and law and legislation, mm-hmm. which I don't, I'm not suggesting we reject, but I think we can stretch those envelopes, and I think there's still a bit of reluctance to do that because where might that lead us? Yeah, and I also think we should be adopting different group processes for the stuff that we you know the regular meeting, mm-hmm. the encounter that you spoke about. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other ways to innovate how those interactions go, rather than everybody sit around and some people are looking on their phones and somebody's not following the agenda and somebody's late and, you know, I mean, that's maybe an oversimplification, but are there other ways to have productive group interactions that maybe depart from the norm? And I just don't know why we don't sort of experiment with slightly less conventional, but, but real things that work. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. just saying, you know, you know, just sit and meditate for 15 minutes and everybody walk out, yeah. you know, something yeah. that, that has yeah. a tangible yeah. outcome and a result, but is not necessarily conventional or or tried and true in a culture that hasn't changed and, and developed that much. So, I, you know, and I, I look forward with it to a degree of stretching those a bit in my own yeah. work yeah. and seeing how people receive it. Yeah, because uh, some of these practices, like when you read about them, they'll go and do a psychological study, they'll have people do this very specific breathing exercise, diaphragmatic breathing or something, or they'll have them, you know, go out and have a walking meeting or whatever. There's all of these things that, um, you know, if you were a leader trying to introduce those practices into your group or even just a team member trying to introduce them, there's this hurdle of kind of the woo-woo hurdle, I guess you want to call it, you know, like where people are like, oh, what is this guy doing here with these breathing exercises or whatever? But it's like, no, there there is science behind it, and really now it's it's a matter of kind of shifting our culture towards understanding these practices as ways that we can pull back from irrational thinking, from being caught in this death spiral of anxiety and stress uh, and conflict, as the case may be, right? So I see culture as, and I'm, t- I'm also totally with you on this idea of, facilitation basically right like how does group process look uh if we try this Mm -hmm. or if we try that that google experiment that i mentioned you know like just simple things like you as the person running the meeting create safe space by having people all chime in you know and and indicating to everybody in the room that you're curious about what they have to say so much so that you'll really look into some of the nonverbal stuff that's happening and try to pull some of that out so that people feel like they can just be themselves and explore in that space. It's about being curious. It's about exploring. It's about getting into that flow state. And there is, there is stuff about group flow too. I mean, they they also talk about what is it like when you bring a group together? Because there's certain conditions or triggers that are more Hmm. um, sort of applicable to group situations. And there's certain conditions that if a facilitator or a leader or a group 
manager or what have you, was conscious of those. And he or she tried to be the catalyst that brought those into those environments. What would that be like, at least? I mean, so I think that there are those things. And a lot of what you're saying, huge premium on curiosity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and ways of creativity that are punctuated by, you know, yes, and the idea goes. There, there, there is no... You know, there is no shooting down of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody says, well, what about this? And then the answer is yes. And what about that? Mm-hmm. So it's not, well, that's not going to work because, or we tried that last year and it was a waste of time, which just turns down people's appetite to engage. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not complex, these things. And some degree of, of uh, I don't know, movement. I think we sit around too, I, I think we sit too much. I think we're too sedentary. We're sitting right now. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Which is quite pleasant. I'm happy to do it for once in a while because I've been pretty active all day. But can we mix that in and yes. mix that up? Yeah. yeah. Um, and what if we interspersed a lot of dialogue with something more embodied? Within reason. I mean, I'm not suggesting everybody should go and do yoga every, you know, in the middle of a meeting. But is there some element of that that could be integrated? Mm-hmm. But also it has to, I think, show that it makes some positive difference. Yes. I mean, it's not just for the sake of it. So yeah. I'm, I'm just, and I know there's a lot of that stuff going on, but in a lot of the cultures and the work that I do, it, it, it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think you're right. People sort of um, raise their eyebrows and wonder, was this some new age sort of gimmick that's being tried on us here? I, I came to a meeting. I expect to get something done. Yeah. This guy's asking us to, to ground ourselves for five minutes. What the? So, <laughs> but I think that's good. I think there yeah. needs to be some disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we should be doing that. And I think I've probably, maybe at a time now where I'm not going to be cavalier and, and sort of dangerous out there, but um, much more prepared to take those kinds of risks than I probably was building my career and, and always having to be accepted by everybody and, and seen to do it right. It's not that I don't care about that anymore, because I do, mm-hmm. but I'm way more um, um, liberated, I feel, to, to stretch some of those edges. Exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it comes from just being at this for a while um, and believing that, that there are other ways. Um, and I think I've experienced it in my own personal Well, I see journey. it as, as going all the way back to your, to your youth, in a sense, right? Of being in this kind of unconventional setting, right? Uh, where there's lots of different ideas and people around and you're being imbued with this sense of um, anti-oppression, as you called it, right? That like there is a certain degree of importance attached to collaborating yeah like just working together uh getting along with each other in the process um and seeing where we can get to together rather than um you know the zero-sum approach right so i think you know i can based based on kind of what you said earlier about some of the key things that come out in interest-based negotiation there's this curiosity this is a big theme that we've kind of touched on here and then there's you know there's that framing issue, which we kind of touched on a little bit, like being very careful about the words that we're using so that we're not necessarily triggering people, um, but kind of flipping them into a subconscious assumption about what this is, what this discussion is all about. Right. Um, What other kind of big principles or themes do you see from your work? alongside those those two or are those kind of the real real like well no i think they're co- i mean i think all of these things sort of are are accompanied by other things yeah. i mean to me um and again this is gonna this is gonna be stating the obvious but it's amazing it's amazing how obvious this is but how hard it is for people to do well particularly when they disagree and probably right. everybody knows what i'm about to say listening and i mean listening at depth mm-hmm. and i mean paying careful attention to try to deconstruct 
the meaning being conveyed to you in, in, in a way that tries to turn down our natural inclination to evaluate and judge the incoming message. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening has to be, I think, a very um, deliberate, practiced um, set of skills and behaviors. And it has to be demonstrated periodically. Because we can never know where... Because I, I believe good communication, like effective communication, good communication, is about the creation of shared meaning. Now, I don't have to agree with you about a point of view that you have on a problem that we share or a view that you have about anything. Mm-hmm. But can we converse in such a way that the meanings that we're trying to be conveyed are being shared in some way? Um, and I think that has to happen partly through um, listening traits even. Are they traits? Probably not traits. But, but skills that genuinely, and, the, and I'm not just talking about paraphrasing and restating and all that stuff, which is essential, mm-hmm. but, but as you were saying before, um, noticing, looking, um, paying careful attention to the, the more subtle cues when people interact with each other, which I think gets lost a lot of the time. Um, so to me, these are coupled because I often talk about cr- curiosity creates a listening opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it is catalytic. I mean, if I ask you a, a, a you know a, a question that that in, that is probing in nature, that I have no concept of what the no answer idea might be. Where you're gonna go, yeah. The suggestion is I care about what's about to come here, mm-hmm. and if I pay attention to that and try to um, you know manufacture its meaning in my own head, I need to then periodically demonstrate that I'm picking that up. And doing that when we disagree is doubly difficult, if not you know. It's, it's just that much harder mm-hmm. because our tendency is not to listen carefully and deconstruct incoming meaning. It's to do all of the other things, defend, judge, evaluate, mm-hmm. counter, all of those things. And a lot of that is a bit uh, ego protective and sort of we're hijacked by other parts of our brain that is saying, ah, you don't agree with that. That's not going to work for you. Um, default to down. something. Yeah. Shut her down mm-hmm. and um, confront that um, and correct it or ignore it and so I just think that those guys, so I think, I'd say, you know, if I was to say, you know, what people can do better to communicate or conflict in, in discussions with others, it would be a high premium on curiosity, mm-hmm. asking questions that encourage people to speak more about their values and their objectives and what matters to them, listening carefully, which is not only paying attention and not interrupting and all that stuff, but periodically gathering up how you've comprehended what somebody has conveyed to you in your own way, in your own words. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is we've got to get a grip on our own emotional state and our own, um, and I think coupled with that, ability to be self-aware and self-reflective. Because what I see more often than not is the tendency to project fault and blame and wrongdoing on the other and assume some degree, again, don't overgeneralize, some degree of victimhood. This has all been done to me. Yes. You are the problem. Yeah. Uh, the problem exists with you. Without you, there would So, And I'm not saying yeah. that, that some of that is not natural, and maybe you did say something mean to me or took something of mine that you should... I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but, but being consumed by that typically doesn't serve people in trying to move ahead because they're latched on to a feeling of injustice or wrongdoing. Um, and that doesn't usually serve people in the long term if they want to resolve something or at least let go of the stress that goes along with holding on to um, the slights and the offenses that they have accumulated in their own experience with other people. Uh, and I see it yeah. so much in, in the relational mm-hmm. aspects of people's conflict. Forget about the substance, what they disagree about. Oftentimes, the, what people have trouble with is how they treat each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, and that makes me think about uh, a fantastic book that I, I'm always uh, surprised. I tell a lot of my friends who are in the kind of social justice space 
about it and they don't seem to know about it. And I'm like, well, you got to read this book. Um, its central argument is uh, conflict is not abuse. Um, we shouldn't be confusing abuse with day-to-day conflict that we're having or conflicting different opinions about, about you know, different events, what we call ourselves, so on and so forth, right? And this ties in with ideas that you've expressed before about conflict is kind of everywhere. You, you can't really escape it. It's, it's always in the background of our social relations, and it can bubble up, and you have to be present to it when it does. Um, but this, this person's book, Sarah Schulman is her name, you know, she basically makes an argument that comes down uh, right, cleaves a line right in the middle between kind of the extreme left and the extreme right, and says, you know, these white supremacists over here who have these ideas, um, they're responding in the way that they are because they feel as if their identity is being abused by these different opinions that are being expressed, and so they're coming out in full force. And then on the left, it's the same thing, but in in relationship to gender pronouns and things of this nature. People are being called in a certain way. They feel as if they're being abused through that very act of somebody using a different pronoun and so on and so forth, right? And so you lead down this path of conflating conflict and abuse, and you're suddenly, the only role that you have to play in that is as a victim. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole morality play around that too, which is as you know, what does the victim do? Well, the victim gets revenge and uh, vanquishes the enemy, uh, so on and so forth, right? And so story plays into this quite a bit. And so I want to tie kind of another idea in here. <laughs> a lot of what you're saying is, is fantastic. It's making me think of a lot of great things, but the flip side of listening is, uh, and this is just an idea I'm throwing out there, you can tell me what you think, but it's kind of storytelling in a sense, right? Um, that we have to tell a good story to in turn have somebody listen, right? Uh, and we're storied creatures in that Very sense. Right. We we like to hear how something came from point A to point B and everything that happened in between. And I'm curious if, if you've seen in your practice that ability to tell the story. You probably see it a lot in reflecting back to people about what's been said, but do you see storytelling as a component as well? I mean, I think it's a huge component, and there are certain traditions of mediation that, that, are, that are called narrative mediation hmm. that really focus on the narratives that we bring to the conflict and how we construct those different narratives, whether it's, you know, there's a victor and a vanquished and a hero. I mean, we, we, we construct these these things, but we very, I, I agree entirely. We are creatures that thrive on narrative and story and myth and metaphor. Um, and I, I think people who are more conflict competent or capable, they can describe their perspective on a problem in, in a, they can construct a narrative that's more compelling. Hmm. Um, and, and, and to your point encourages people to listen because there's something of interest in that. Hmm. And the way it's expressed is done in such a way that it, it engages interest and it can engage curiosity. Whereas somebody just sort of lays out the facts and sort of points to, to the, the data. And I'm not saying there's not time and place for that. Mm-hmm. But how we construct narrative and how we convey meaning embedded in story and metaphor and image and, and symbolism, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Which in some ways is, is not the convention in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. You ask people, so what are you here to talk about? 
And they'll, they'll usually talk about history and the particular instances of the problem, and, but not often construct or embedding that in a, in a greater narrative hmm. of, of their working life and, and the values that they bring. And, and I think the, big, the, the thing you hit on, which is you know, sort of um, fascinating to me, is identity. Because mm-hmm. identity always, in some way, shows up, as does power. Um, so people are often defending the values that make up who they are. So the conflict arena becomes that much more intensified in, in your example, mm-hmm. of, you know, the far right and the far left, because people's, they believe that their identity, their sense of being, uh, the values that make them who they are, their morality is being assaulted or threatened by something else. And it's, it's holy ground. So, so identity presents itself, but it can present itself in much more subtle ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if people can then begin to identify with the narrative of another who is very different from them, could there be some common, uh, Threads there without yes. having to adopt yes. the identity yeah. of the other or yeah. or depart from your own strongly held values, and we're terrible at it, I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Where I think I think in general, uh, especially in in North America, we're really bad at public disagreement and kind of just a culture of I don't know political disagreement. I think right, and so it does become this polarized thing. So. I, this has been a really good conversation. Um, but I'm also mindful of our time because it marches on as it, as it always does. Um, so I'm going to switch us into some rapid round questions, which kind of get at some of your influences and some of the places that you come from a bit more. So in a way it's probably going to tie into what we talked about earlier, but I'm still curious. So I'm going to ask you these questions if that's all right. Okay. Um, so you, you, you did mention Gordon Sloan as kind of being a key mentor in your work. Um, so I, I, I think that's the answer to that question. Who is your key mentor? Um, but is there a second mentor or another kind of, um, person that you hold as, uh, whether you've met them and worked with them or they're just a archetype or a person that you really hold up in, in high regard. Yeah, and I think in terms of, of like live human beings walking around, that he would be the, the major mentor and influence mm-hmm. in, in both in my, in my work life for sure, but in other areas as well as a, as a great and, and true friend. Um, I, I think I've always been quite attracted to, um, again, remarkable people and sometimes remarkable in the Jesus sense or in the Gandhi sense, right. uh, in the Bruce Lee. So it can it, everything from people who are just exceptional in some way uh, and in a quite a unique, sometimes unconventional way, who who fly in the face of, or who are prepared to be bold in in what they do, whether it's extreme athletes who do things that defy what you think is possible. I mean, mm-hmm. I, or or you know, very accomplished um, you know um, thinkers on things that have. So I mean, I could I could sort of you know name list or what have you, but I think I've always been, and and my own personal has been researching and reading and thinking through and amassing other people's narratives that have been. I think exceptional. And I'm interested in that. What's exceptional? What has made them exceptional? Why can they be the way they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, what can I learn from that? And it's inspiring. So I think I've dabbled in, in that in, in a lot of different genres for the last, gosh, certainly decade intensively. Um, so I think that those archetypes of, of, of type have really influenced me and um, continue to. And, and, I, and usually one thing, you, you know, you, you sort of delve into a certain thinking or a certain person and their life story. And then sometimes that leads you into another interesting mm-hmm. um, offshoot of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I don't know if that, that's not, maybe not a rapid fire answer, but. No, it's, yeah. it's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good answer. 
Um, I, I, I'm, I'm also inspired by a lot of those same characters, you know, they're just anomalies or something, right? They just do this thing that's so different. Uh, Josh Wyatskin, I think about all the time in, in that regard too, with, uh, I think it's called the art of learning his book or something, but, but those, yeah, those people who just, they focus on a certain thing and they master it and they do so in a way that's different and kind of breaks the mold of what mastery looks like in that space. Very cool stuff. Um, so kind of further to that, uh, more at a intellectual level, I guess, is uh, influential books. Like what what book has been really key for you and, and, and your work that you're doing that you kind of treat as a touchstone or maybe not a book, maybe it's a video or uh, a song even. I mean, yeah. and it's, you know what, what I'm not, I, I read voraciously and love it. Um, probably one of my great um, you know, activities of enjoyment. I'm not good at reciting a lot of titles because mm. um, <laughs> I think of what I'm reading right now. Like I've got two or three books on the go right now. Um, and I mean, I'm reading this one. Um, it's called uh, Altered Traits. So it's, it's the neuroscience, uh, basically mm. contemplative neuroscience by you know, the leading, the, the, the guy who wrote Emotional Intelligence. He collaborated with, oh, with yeah. uh, I forget yeah. their name. Again, I'm not good with names. Um, so they have studied meditation and the effects of meditation on the brain mm-hmm. and the effects on, so they're talking about altered states. So when you get in, when you meditate, which, which, which I've adopted as a practice, um, as an office, um, you know, you, you can, you can experience a certain state, like a degree of whether peacefulness or just mm-hmm. relaxation or something, but, but it's usually episodic and then you get off the pillow and then you move into life and you're the same person you yeah. were yeah. 20 minutes ago. But they've studied sort of how do you how do you make those traits and the practice that goes into cultivating those a change in your in your in your being. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm reading right now, which I'm fascinated by. And um, so I, I usually fall into literature and research that that seems topical to what I'm mm-hmm. to what I'm uh, interested in. And Stephen Kotler's work, uh, he's the big flow guy. Him and mm-hmm. his partner Jamie Wheel, they wrote uh, Stealing Fire, which I'm actually waiting to to get. Um, but I've done some reading of his, which, and he's, he's somebody who, who's kind of him and his partner, they're part of the flow genome project. So they've been mapping a lot of the neuroscience and studying people who are in flow states. So I've been, I've been sort of enmeshed in that for a while and a lot of classical stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I sort of dabble in that and, and then people's, um, but bio, biographies or autobiographies of unbelievable people. So when I was into endurance ultra running, I read every, every endurance ultra runners, you know, manifesto, right? Wow. We're running, you know, three or four days at a time. So I got fully in that. So you've done, you've done. That. Yeah. I got into ultra we totally running for a missed while. That. Yeah. Is... I got into ultra running for a while. I mean, I'm always <laughs> dabbling in something. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm always trying to cultivate and I'm not, I'm not accomplished at it, but it was a discipline to me. It's a lot of, it's a discipline, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and whether it's food or now one of my things now is cold exposure. People are probably who are listening have heard of Wim Hof, mm-hmm. who is, you know, now semi famous as, yep. as the guy who's got a breathing technique and cold exposure. So that's a practice I've adopted and, and for a long, long time. So I'm always looking at these people, I guess these days call them hacks, but to mm. me, they're just disciplines of varying kinds that improve the way I feel, the way I interact with the world that I live in and manage the, the stresses and stuff um, that are inevitable as we navigate, you know, the day to day. Yeah. I totally uh, also tinker around with that sort of stuff. I've, I meditated uh, way back in my twenties quite a bit and then picked it up again about three years ago doing do it regularly every every morning that I can some mornings I sleep in and I don't have the time because I've got kids running around it's just impossible um, 
but these these practices these disciplines uh they're so important they're so integral and i think there's some people in the world today who are experimenting with them trying them out it's like a thing that a lot of people are practicing and then there's other people that just totally like don't go there ever um and i'm curious uh this is kind of a personal question more than anything but i'm curious how you talk to folks and how you kind of get them on board with these things that you know if they've never done meditation or if they've never done the wim hof method do you do you have any tricks around i mean i think part of it i mean part of it is everybody does want to feel better yeah i mean most people are striving whether they're going to prepare to make the effort they want to be feel better look better perform better show up better I mean, I don't think anybody would say, yeah, you know, I'd rather feel like shit and and not perform well and and be, you know, half-assed in this life that I live. But the stuff that's required, and the thing is, the research is abundantly clear Mm -hmm. about how to lead a relatively healthful life. It's, it's It's not complicated. There's four or five things that if you're diligent at, and it's not extremism, I'm not talking about major yeah. you know, hours a day of training and things like that, mm-hmm. but four or five particular practices that do take discipline um, to cultivate. Uh, and, and I think people's relu- partly a lot of people's reluctance is it, it is a discipline, um, and it's so contrary from, from kind of everyday life for, for a number of people and, and the traditions that they're used to. To me, it's, it's about um, not overselling this stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> I run into that problem. Yeah. But yeah, go on. And I guess um, <laughs> if you're passionate about it, it shows. Mm-hmm. And also, and it's not like, oh, uh, do you model it? But but do you show up in a way that some would say, gosh, not that they've got something going for themselves, but it looks like something they're doing is working. You know, um, so so can you impress upon people without, without and I, I think there should never be critique or, or, or um, you know, denigration of other people's habits and recognition that this stuff is hard. Um, so I think there's passion and being, being sort of inspiring in how mm-hmm. you describe it. Um, and, and I think the idea is um, minor, incremental, little changes. Mm-hmm. And if those can... I mean, I, I'm all for hardcore, full-on stuff, but most people, that's just too extreme. So, for example, my mom was here last... Well, she's, you know, in her... She probably, I shouldn't say this, but in her late 70s. So I, I, I took her through mm-hmm. a bit of a breathing meditation and a mm-hmm. Wim Hof breath hold and she saw an immediate result for that now I wasn't saying this is going to change your life or if you don't do this you're going to you know yeah, you're yeah, going to yeah. die prematurely I just said give this a shot see what it's like and it's you know it's brief um, and if there's a tangible thing you can experience in the moment the likelihood that that will say ah that was is, is greater than just sort of talking mm-hmm. about the science of you yes, know, mindfulness yes, and how yeah. it will reduce your cortisol levels and you'll sleep better. Well, okay. Yeah. We can talk about that, but can you experience any, any part of it? Mm-hmm. So I think it's how you live, what you show up with. Um, are you inspired? Can you speak about it in a way that's compelling and is not kind of seeming, seemingly putting down somebody who's not doing those things? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think engendering curiosity. Because when I talk about some of the stuff that I do, people are interested in it. Because one of my things is I fast a lot. And that's the thing that I think people I ask. Love, I love yeah. fasting. I think people ask me more about that than anything. Yeah. My eating. Why aren't you eating? Right? Exactly. Well, Why aren't I eating? I haven't seen you eat today. What's going on? And then there's this whole narrative around we have to eat three meals a day and we have to eat this. And, da, 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 and, and so it's a conversation point. And I'm not saying you should fast. I'm saying, you know, here's some of what I do and here's some of how I feel. And, you know, here's, and I might, might punctuate it with a bit of sort of, research or science you know about fat burning and ketogenic stuff and 
And sometimes that, that's interesting. So is it interesting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whether or not people change their minds, is it interesting to them? Cool. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to reflect on that <laughs> while, I, uh, while I added this and think on that. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, I think you know, there's, a, there's a rapid round question I have here around key ingredients for working together, but I think we kind of covered that in this entire conversation. Um, so I'll, I'll leave off with one last one here. Uh, what for you, I mean, failure is like, it's, it's a big part of any kind of experimental attitude, anything that we're doing in life. Right. So what for you was an important failure in your life? Um, uh, and, and why, and, and what, what was it about, uh, that, that, that was so important for you that kind of instructed your life from then on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know there's a lot in that question, so I'll try mm-hmm. to I'll try to keep it brief. I, I think the first thing I'd say it's it's I guess a bit of a personal disclosure. I was adverse to failing. I mean I mean I think part of my tendencies is to 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 be over functioning and mm-hmm. and a bit of a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. So I would I would recoil from the possibility of failure. And it's not that I didn't do it and I'm I'm as you know failing as as the next guy. But I would always try to construct situations where I would likely not fail. And I think that that probably, um, at the end of the day, was safe and self-protective, but I don't know if it stretched me and created the kind of growth that it could have. So I'm, today, now, I'm a little more inclined to be risky and, I mean, risky within reason and allow for failure or for things to not work out, whereas before I was much more conservative, much more self-protective, uh, and unwilling to allow much possibility for that. And I think that held me back. So that's a bit of a learning of mine. Um, because it probably spoke to my own self-concept. If, if, I'm, if I'm making mistakes or failing, what does that say about my own self-concept mm-hmm. and who I think I am? Um, and it fa- it's hard to say failure because I think at some level it probably was a failure. I mean, my marriage ended and I, you know, it was a long-term 17-year you know, uh, relationship with three wonderful children and, and they're great. And I mean, it all worked itself out over time. And I don't know if it's a failure, but it's something that didn't last and didn't work. And the mm-hmm. intention way back when was that it would. Um, and that's obviously transformational in terms of just one's life and, and particularly my values. I was a father and a husband and, and that was my life and a huge part of my identity. So, so departing from that and picking up those pieces, um, learning from that and going to some deep and dark places, but emerging from that's probably been one of the more profound mm-hmm. um, sort of failure experiences or, or just life altering, shattering experiences that you do, you know, pick up the pieces from and emerge differently. Um, so that probably is one that, that, that stands out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it kind of ties in with a lot of what we've talked about as well in terms of these models that we have of, um, you know, whether it's that conflict is not abuse idea where we have an identity or something that if, if it's in conflict with something in the world and we mistake that conflict for being abuse and some, then, then we're heading down a path of victimization and so on and so forth. We have the same models about our relationships, love relationships, work relationships, so on and so forth, I believe. Um, and a lot of it is culture. A lot of it is how we've been brought up to kind of see what a marriage is supposed to be, what monogamy is supposed to be. All of these kind of things, I think, are beginning to be looked at and reflected upon um, in ways that... I can only hope are going to lead to uh, a more healthy society in the future, right? Where 
where we're recognizing ways that we can exist within difference and conflict, whether it's spousal, whether it's at work, whatever it might be, and still kind of um, maintain this, uh, this collaborative, curious state and be more aware of how we're not getting there because we're in this, uh, I don't know, like this lizard brain mode, right? We have such capacity to exceed the lizard brain, (laughs) but we're still getting stuck there all the time, right? And doing the sorts of practices and things that you've talked about in our conversation today, um, thinking about conflict differently as, as an opportunity to create a solution together. All of these sorts of things, I think, um, we're just at the cusp of this whole, this whole new culture, maybe, that I hope we see in the next, uh, you know, few decades or so. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's 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 a major effort. I mean, so it takes, and I think it takes people to you know go out and and really um, practice that, mm. um, and and let the chips fall. Practice um, is such a fundamental part I of it. Talk about this stuff all day long. Write mm-hmm. about it. Blog about it. Mm-hmm. YouTube about it, but. And at some level, and I don't want to end on a sort of more mushy note, but I mean, it is about love and compassion. Can people Mm -hmm. love each other better? And I don't mean be romantic or be buddies, but treat each other with a genuine regard and sense of empathy and care. I I know that in a lot of cases that's hard to do or they're just, it's in short supply. But I mean, if there's ways to cultivate more of that, um, and it's not that the conflicts go away, but the way we treat those Mm -hmm. are less of an adversary and more of of, you know, a, a, you know, another, another, you know, pilgrim on the journey that, that, that is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also, you know, there's, that, that begs a lot of questions, but, um, yeah, I sometimes look at the people who, who conflict in my midst cause I, I'm, I'm always the one invited in and I sometimes just think, gosh, you know, a little love would go a long way here. <laughs> a little yielding, a little, yeah. a little softening, yeah. Yeah. just a little, mm-hmm. uh, and often it's, it's hard to come by. Oh, I'll keep trying. <laughs> yeah, no. that's great. Uh, that's a great note to end it on. So, uh, thank you, Jamie. It was a great conversation. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, glad we could have this conversation. Same here. Yeah, it's been great. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.